This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Sean Pattenden. So what is unreasonable behaviour? Kirsty Sedgman is an award-winning cultural studies scholar based at the University of Bristol, and she's just published on being unreasonable, breaking the rules and making things better. Kirsty has spent her career working out how people can live side by side in the same world, yet come to understand it in such totally different ways. And as such, she is Doctor of Audiences. Welcome to the bunker, Kirsty. Thanks so much for having me. So firstly, what the hell is a doctor of audience, right? Audiences were very much the starting points. Um, my actual job title is lecturer in theatre, so doctor of audiences is the slightly <laughs> tongue-in-cheek version, but it absolutely is why I study theatre in the first place, because it's a laboratory for figuring out what it means to be together in public space in a world where those opportunities to congregate have got less and less. But I guess um, if I were to try to to give you just a sentence about what a Doctor of Audiences does, it, mm-hmm. whether it's looking at a Brecht play or something like the Brexit referendum, how can we understand the very different ways that we find meaning in the things that we watch or read or hear? Absolutely. And how do then we get from theatre audiences to the quote unquote reasonable man? Because it often is a reasonable man that uh, has an objective standard of judgment, maybe, and so it seems to make the rules. Well, a few years ago, it's about eight years now, when I had my eldest child, I got really obsessed with something that we often call theatre etiquette, which is the rules of behaviour in live performance spaces. And that ideal of silent reverence from audiences, because around that time, I had just had a new baby and I suddenly found myself essentially a professional theatre goer, unable to go to the theatre without the ability to magically detach my breasts and leave them at home. And right at that same time, there was an upsurge. It felt like every week there was a new article coming out both in the UK and also in the US about badly behaving audiences, the worst audiences ever, a lot of people said. Uh, KFC buckets being brought in at the interval and eating during the second half. Mobile phones were always going off. The actors were complaining, weren't they? Absolutely. Someone, in fact, once climbed up on a Broadway show to try to plug their phone into the fake pockets (laughs) on the set. So it was a minefield and I got really interested in studying Mm. that from an academic perspective. And what I realised is that when I studied all of these, I talk about it a bit in On Being Unreasonable, a hundred guides to theatre etiquette, I realised that everyone had a very clear understanding that audiences were behaving badly and needed to be retrained. But where they drew that line between acceptable and unacceptable, appropriate, inappropriate, good and bad, that actually varied quite hugely. 
And you broaden it out in the book, obviously, about breastfeeding in public. So we start with you can't really take a baby to the theatre. They're not particularly silent or reverent. But indeed, what people think is natural and normal, some people will believe is unreasonable, i.e. feeding your baby. So we start with that at the very start of the book. Tell us about your experience of that and where this idea of civility may come from historically. Of course, that's breastfeeding is just one of the examples. It's the first story that I tell to help us really see that messy, confusing, sometimes hilarious reality of working out what it means to be together in public and what it means to be a good person in public. Another is women applying makeup on trains. So why such a strong view on whether putting on makeup on a train is is unreasonable? Where does it stem from? That particular example is absolutely bound up in ideals about beautification processes being something that women should be demurely hiding from people in public. It's something that a lot of people think of as a hygiene routine. I wouldn't clip my fingernails or brush my teeth on a train. So why should you apply a smear of lipstick? And meanwhile, women are saying, well, if these are the beauty standards that have been forced on us in the first place, why should we be expected then to get up an hour early, lose an hour of sleep when we're going to be sitting on the train for quite some time with nothing else to do? And if it's not harming anybody else, why should we be shamed for it? Um, We're talking about bias here. So you broaden out and we talk about how the world of, say, being reasonable and where the idea of being reasonable comes from, but it's very different for everybody. So you're saying for those in positions of, quote, privilege to those from a broader base of marginalised communities, what seems to be something that should have a bog standard definition, it should be sensible, is completely different. Everyone has a different view of what reasonableness is. Absolutely. And the big question that my book asks is, how can we figure out what's right in a world where we all are coming at these massively complex moral issues from our own particular vantage points, able to see certain parts of the equation, but not necessarily able to understand where other people are coming from? How can we then collectively figure out, well, what is the right way to behave that is inclusive and safe and fair for everybody? Are you talking in the book about the history of who makes the rules? And as we have mentioned, we've mentioned the word privilege. And you mentioned the word white a lot. And you mentioned the word white men. In the 11th century, a Benedictine monk called Peter Damien sent his fellow clergymen a long list of things that he believed women were like. Is he the sort of person that starts making some rules? And does this come from a religious background? Some of it is religious. In fact, I took a little deep dive, which I think is fascinating in the book, into the theological origins of that term reasonable doubt, which is now absolutely essential to how we make all our legal judgments. When I'm talking about white men, I'm married to a white man. I'm raising two (laughs) little white boys into what I hope will be really good white men. It's not about individual people at all. The big problem that my book addresses is that it was absolutely a really narrow slice of society. We're talking about upper middle class, powerful, rich, white men, able-bodied, who decided that people who looked exactly like them deserved to be the ultimate arbiters for how everybody else should behave. It was this moral, philosophical, but also then legal standard of judgment. And the problem isn't necessarily that that standard of judgment is uniquely bad. 
but it's that it was the only standard that was seen as objective and neutral and just common sense. How does this relate to the law? Proving something beyond reasonable doubt, for instance. So we have the word reasonable in there. Is there a specific person that made that rule or did it sort of come together in an enormous conglomerate of whoever had power? It started with the philosophers who spent a long time wrangling over what a reasonable person looked like. They had to be rational, able to make informed and evidence-based decisions and they had to be led when they're making those decisions by intellectual reasoning rather than by pure emotion. And of course, we know just the very word hysterical, the way that mm-hmm. it was often women, but also disabled people and people of colour that over history became coded as irrational and impulsive for in really actually quite unfair ways. But in terms of the law it was really the 1800s, which is one of the stories I go into the in the book and a case um, which brought together Vaughan and Menlove, the defendant set fire to his neighbour's fence. And the lawyer's argument was that, well, he can't be blamed for it because he's actually not very intelligent. And the judge ruled that actually it didn't matter what the intellectual capacities of that particular person were. All that mattered is would a reasonable man in that same circumstance have acted in that same way? The answer was no, and he was forced to pay lots of money. And if we go back to our monk friend, Peter, as I now know him, there is this wonderful list of terms he has uh, for these priests, wives, and just women in general, who you can see would none of these people would be proved reasonable. So I'll read some of them out. Appetizers of the devil screech owls, which is a particular favourite of mine, which I would now be known by, mad vipers, who, because of impatience of the burning lust of your loves, mutilate Christ, impious tigers, whose blood-stained mouths cannot refrain from human blood, harpies who fly around, etc., etc., etc. A woman hasn't got a chance of being reasonable at this stage in history, has she? No, and what really Peter Damien was very worried about, what he was cautioning his fellow clergymen against was being taken in by feminine wiles. And I talk a little <laughs> about how this goes all the way back to the Christian Bible, Eve, her very self. That enduring narrative of the female temptress and the poor hapless man who can never be held accountable for anything he might do because he was led astray has had real world consequences in the case of domestic violence trials and also sexual assault and sexual violence against women, the way that victims so often are blamed, I argue, shows those enduring schemata reoccurring again and again and again. We just haven't loosed ourselves from these historical ties. Yes, it's incredible when you read it and then when you think of parallels now. There's also something about the women are, now correct me if I'm wrong, cold and wet according to the humours, and men are warm and not wet or something. Tell, tell me just quickly about, th- this was actually a common held belief, and you sort of see it parallel. Yeah, they had to try to figure out why people were getting sick, and they came up with this idea of the humours, which had to be in balance. What they tended to believe is that women were naturally unbalanced, prone naturally to being more wet and cold than men, who were naturally prone <laughs> to being more hot and dry, 
But because they believed that that hot dryness was capable of burning off the cold wetness, they thought that men were better able to regulate that emotional state. And that's why physically they tended to be heartier and stronger. And emotionally, they tended to be more rational and less prone to emotional outbursts, which is something that I actually critique when we look at the uh, legacy and the centuries of male rage. But this is yes, there's they, been a few outbursts, haven't there? Yes, but mm-hmm. this is what they believed. And they also believed that the um, antidote to that imbalance for women was sex. More specifically, for women to pursue the poor, hapless male of the street species in droves, because coitus apparently makes people hot and dry and it would help women burn off all that wet stuff which is why (laughs) women were so sexually voracious and needed to be feared um there are lots of examples in the book and i'll talk about a couple one is incredibly interesting about the community app next door which we all kind of quote unquote love to hate it is generally people talking about how someone may burgle them and yet they don't get burgled. What is this as an example of reasonableness and unreasonableness and how something can slip into bigotry with Nextdoor? The core question that my book asks is, what does it mean to feel like you are a reasonable person with the right to judge other people? And when is that actually a really pro-social impulse? Because we saw during the pandemic the need to regulate our behaviours to keep other people safe. That was seen as a really good and selfless thing to do. But what I think Nextdoor shows us is actually in really quite hilarious ways. I go into some of the stories in my book that the dangers of that mode of thinking that because something seems suspicious to you or out of place or because I wouldn't do it therefore you have the right to leap in and judge and shame other people and I argue just that we need to take that impulse really seriously because it is an exercise of power importantly there's a lot about Racial discrimination, about being a reasonable racist, in inverted commas, obviously abroad, but also with the Colston statue in Bristol, for example. I know that you're Bristol-based. What was so powerful about the Bristol statue being toppled, but also the history of this wasn't the first time that people had tried to get rid of it, and that a lot of people said, well, we don't erase history. That's not what we do. Can you tell us more about that? I love talking things through. I have made words and language my entire life's work. I explain things to students for a living. I encourage healthy and constructive debates in my classrooms. And I am a student. I study discourse, which is basically just the way we talk about in the world. My husband was really quite shocked when I said that the whole final chapter of this book was going to be about when words fail us, when they don't work when rational debate and calm discussions and logical conversations can actually become the problem because they they can sometimes, that impulse can stand in the way of actually doing something. And that is the story that Colston's watery burial showed us. One of the things that happened, and I'm based in Bristol, so I was here in the city when he got pulled down and thrown in the harbour. One of the things that we saw in terms of the discourse 
was people kept saying, but I don't understand why couldn't they just? And I investigate the use of those phrases, but I don't understand why can't they just? Why can't they just breastfeed in a way that is acceptable? Why can't they just do this? And often I think that, and I found, and I talk about my own experience of becoming the, why can't they just? About becoming disabled. Why can't you just walk down the road and cross the street at the appropriate crossing point? When you break your leg, suddenly you realise why they're not just doing that. <laughs> yeah. Colston, they had tried. Why can't you just talk it through? They'd tried for decades, petition after petition. They did a big Colston Counts campaign outside the Colston Hall, as it was called then before it became Brecon Beacon, where they were listing all of his various crimes Civil discourse was attempted, but it didn't lead to the statue being taken down. And then I, of course, I interrogate that in light of the long centuries of social justice movements that have tried and also failed. Suffragettes, deeds, not words. They ended up in that place where they had to do sometimes quite reprehensible things because words hadn't worked. And when Colston's statue was torn down, suddenly everything did change. All of those big letters that read out Colston on buildings around the city have been taken down one after another. Sometimes you just need that first domino to fall. And it was, as many people would think, an unreasonable domino. It's a violent act, isn't it, pulling down something? And yet that was the thing that did work, as you're saying. What really interested me is that when they were acquitted... From their trial, it turned out that one of their defences had been that they'd used reasonable force to prevent a crime because causing or forcing the city's residents of colour to walk past that statue of the man who had so violently hurt their communities day after day was causing an unreasonable level of pain. But we need to be able to have these conversations rather than shutting down those dissenting voices that are saying, well, we tried words and they haven't worked. So what now? There's wonderful detail in the book. I mean, it goes into such depth. One of the things that I found absolutely eye-opening, which you did say yourself in the, in the book, regarding bias, because we see so much more bias when it's written down, is the talk about culture and the phrases, where the phrases highbrow and lowbrow come from. Can you quickly just... Define this because this was like, oh, I see someone's making the rules. Yeah, of course. So it blew my mind when I realised that those phrases originate from the racist, classist, sexist science, or pseudoscience, should I say, known as phrenology. And I remember reading Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid, and he kept measuring people's skulls and determining that they were, in fact, a criminal because they had a low brow a low forehead. And essentially, mm. it became so popular during the Victorian era, this idea that it was possible to measure the shape of somebody's skull and determine their moral character. And they believed that the high brows of European, often weak chins, nobility, specifically meant that they were the most evolved form of person and everybody else must be uncivilised. It's incredible, isn't it? And it comes from that. And then you realise, I must never use these words again. 
There seem to, as you're saying, been pivotal shifts. Many, many, a lot of, we're talking about what the Victorians set out, and especially talking about that with Sherlock Holmes. 70s Britain with a debate about collective versus personal responsibility is very interesting and shifting the language and the dialogue around that. We now have social media, and as you have referred to, I see women castigated all the time on it just merely for being alive. Does social media make things worse? Is the discourse harder to rationalise, to be reasonable about or to be unreasonable about? Where are we with that, do you think? Well, yeah, that's the entirety of chapter two, really, which I call the disconnection economy. And I try really hard not to give in to what we might call a a contemporary moral panic around social media, the idea that it is stealing our attention and making civil discourse impossible and that it is just all bad because we have to weigh up the knowledge that actually social media has done a lot of good as well. It's given a platform to those who historically have been deliberately shut out of, gate kept away from positions where their voice could actually be heard. So it's both good and bad. But I suppose what I'm arguing in this book is that all of these things, whether it's manners and civility and the social contract, social media, civil debate, all of these things, they're not just all good or all bad. They are tools that we are using and that sometimes have been wielded against us, both for good and also bad outcomes. And social media is part of a broader shift where we are being deliberately incentivized to engage in furious arguments because that's what makes what that's what makes the most money because it gets the most clicks. How do we then and should we become more unreasonable? The thing that I need to be really careful to say here and that I weigh up very carefully in the book is that obviously I'm not suggesting that anyone should be able to do whatever they like at any point with no consequences. (laughs) Damn. The last thing we need is more selfish people (laughs) who just feel like they can walk around the world destroying things because it suits them. Absolutely not. But we also need to think really carefully when we are following rules, but also when we're setting them, when we're making them, and when we are imposing them on other people, who are these rules benefiting in? Whose interests is it that we act together in these ways as opposed to those? So if we're thinking about being unreasonable, it absolutely is about thinking carefully and critically about who is being harmed. And I raise a a series of questions that we can use as a kind of test to ask ourselves when we are imposing our judgments onto other people. Why are we doing that? Are we doing it because it feels fun or are we doing it because we think that there is a moral imperative that people behave in pro-social ways? And if so, are we lifting up people at the bottom or are we squishing those people back down again? In terms of the idea of rationality, the reasonable man, the reasonable woman, what do our politicians do to stoke it in the UK, do you think? Well, part of what I look at in the book is the kill the bill protests that happened in Bristol about, um, gosh, was it, was it a year ago now? And what we're seeing right now is an intensification politically of that desire to be able to crack down on any protest that essentially the government or the police doesn't like because they have decided that it's gone too far. 
And actually, our right to protest should never be seen as a threat to democracy. There should be mechanisms in place for making sure that that people are not being physically harmed in the protest, in the course of any act of civic dissent. But fundamentally, our right to protest is a fundamental part of democracy. Without protest, there can be no democracy. Very well made, that point. Conversely, though, if I want to be, quote unquote, a reasonable woman and I'm sick of hearing babies gurgling in my coffee shop and I'm scared of a descent into anarchy, if I notice someone putting on lipstick on the tube, what do I do? If I am the righteous person, (laughs) who's speaking for me, Kirsty? Where can I go, apart from the comments section? Excellent question. (laughs) I think the biggest risk with this book, to be honest, is that people will assume that I am claiming to be some kind of ultimate arbiter of reasonableness with the right to tell other people how they should tell other people how to behave. So I'm not claiming to have any easy answers. What I'm trying to say is that When we talk about these things, we tend to reach for words like common sense. It's just manners, just respect, just about consideration for other people. But actually, because we're all trying to live in the world, perhaps I might be bringing my tiny disruptive baby with me as a kind of ticking time bomb that might disturb your delightful, (laughs) peaceful coffee. But Also, as a citizen of the world, I have the right to be able to go out there and be in the world. And conversely, if you're going to be taking public transport, then you have to be able to deal with the public. But these are really knotty and complicated issues. So we need to be able to think really critically ourselves about how we're drawing these lines. And if you have a particular moral conviction that you want to voice, by all means, do so. But we also need to think really carefully about who these ways of being together are being built to benefit and who is being harmed or left out or excluded completely. Kirsty Sedgman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. On Being Unreasonable, Breaking the Rules and Making Things Better is out now from Faber. And for those of you listening, there's a new edition of The Bunker every morning, so please do subscribe. And you can back us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon for extra shows, early access to live events, merchandise, and much, much more from only £3 a month. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Sean Pattenden. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 